0: Let's pray. Father, as we've just sung, take my lips and let them be filled with messages from Thee. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in Your sight, O Lord, our rock, And our Redeemer. Amen. Just before I start, may I say thank you to the people who've led us in music. For whatever reason, maybe just because I've been thinking about this all week, I found that incredibly moving. And um, I'm almost to start crying right now. I just uh, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. That's that's a deep prayer, we could spend the rest of the time just meditating on that, and um, that would be time well spent. But anyway, let's begin from our first slide. Uh, Just the, the the first slide in, yeah, there, this, today we're talking about service. We've lived through a significant moment in history these past couple of weeks, haven't we, with the death of Queen Elizabeth II. Is this sound okay, or is it kind of echoing? It's okay? Last Monday, we saw the pomp and ceremony and grand scale of national mourning with the death of Queen Elizabeth, and it was a a state funeral, not seen in England since Churchill's death, and thus, for most of us, not seen in our lifetimes. It was solemnly glorious, ceremony and ritual, grand military processions, sublime music, tolling of great bells, cathedrals and castles, the diamond-encrusted royal crown, a national day of mourning. For many, it was also a holiday, a day set aside as a holy day, as befitting a beloved monarch. I confess that I got up early to watch some of it. My last honor to a remarkable woman. Queen Elizabeth II was probably one of the best-known women in the world. She was wealthy. She was certainly famous. She lived in palaces with a multitude of household staff tending to her. She attended glamorous movie debuts and dressed in designer gowns to meet world leaders at state dinners. And yet, in the midst of all that glory and glitter, what is the word we heard most consistently over these past couple of weeks in reference to Queen Elizabeth II? Service. Over and over again, service. From the political left, the political right, from those who love the monarchy, from those who would gladly see that form of government set aside, she served. Newspaper columns, people on the street, prime ministers, listen to Boris Johnson in that British House of Commons. She showed the world not just how to reign over people, but how to give, and how to love, and how to serve. And in her funeral service, the Archbishop of Canterbury reminded us Her late majesty famously declared on a 21st birthday broadcast that her whole life would be dedicated to serving the nation and commonwealth. Rarely has such a promise been so well kept. So from the beginning of her reign, crowned in splendor and ceremony, to that now famous photograph of her at work, Still at her post, two days before her death, she served. We talk easily about public service these days. My job was in the federal public service. Indeed, when I worked there, I actually, when I began, I took an oath of loyalty to her. But here I am, retired, free from those obligations. But still, she was on the job up to her death. She kept her vow to serve her whole long life. And so in reflecting on her life in passage, we remembered much of the glitter and glory, and the English monarchy is pretty glorious and the jewels very glittering. But we also honored the endless, humble, daily task of serving that she set her attention and her will to. One columnist I read reminded us that she went to Moose Jaw more often than she went to Manhattan. And that is why the Archbishop also said of her, few leaders received the outpouring of love that we have seen. This brings us to this third element in the Lens for Life series. In this Elam Chapel Chapel serving series, Graham has spoken of praise and of the word, next week is prayer, But this week, we focus on the plain, humble, earthy command to serve. Let's begin with uh, this scripture that Chris read earlier. The mother of James and John goes to Jesus and asks that her sons be elevated to the highest authority in his kingdom. It is not enough for her that they are one of the twelve. They're already in the inner circle. She wants the best places for them, and will plead their case directly to Jesus. Now, was she just a pushy mom, or did James and John put her up to this? story doesn't say, but it doesn't really look like they were embarrassed by her request, does it? Maybe it was their not-so-secret hankering for greatness that made her dare to do this in the first place. It's really an eye-rolling request. In some ways yet interestingly enough Jesus doesn't dismiss it no sense of that there's no sense that he's offended by the request he doesn't just say oh get over yourselves he says you don't know what you're asking he doesn't say it's wrong to want to be great especially to be great in the kingdom of God It's just that in this upside-down kingdom of God, the path to greatness is not a glorious one. Can you really drink this cup? James and John declare, sure, we're up to the task, but Jesus is right. They don't really know what they are declaring. They are like most of us when we make a vow, when we made a vow, when we sang that song, take my life, let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. So however solemn we vow, and it is good to make solemn vows, however firm our intent, the full extent of these promises is lived out in daily, small faithfulness for the most part, and yet sometimes also through unimaginably difficult circumstances. It wasn't like Jesus hadn't warned them According to Matthew's account, this conversation, um, this request from their mom, happens immediately after Jesus had just taken the disciples aside to explain how they were going to Jerusalem and he would be given over to death. The other disciples were not pleased. They were indignant when they'd heard about the request. James and John had, after all, tried to do an end run around the rest of them to better their position. Yet they were missing the point too, weren't they? They were also forgetting what Jesus had just been telling them about his journey to the suffering that awaited them. So Jesus is even more explicit this time. There's no metaphor about can you drink this cup but the hard truth in plain language about what service and authority really means. He says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over him. That's the greatness you think you want, being the big man, the one who can order people around, the one who when they speak, everybody listens. That's the greatness the world talks about. But Jesus says, no, not you, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He doesn't say, don't be great. He doesn't even say, don't long for greatness. Just know that the price of greatness is service. That's what I'm teaching you. And in how I serve you before my death, even as I'm going to kneel and wash your feet, that is also what I'm going to show you about service. So what is service? What is Christian service? John used to be, uh, at the church we were at before, there was Pioneer, Pioneer girls and the boys had Christian Service Brigade. What is Christian service? I, I think they played a lot of floor hockey. I, I think that was, that was part of it. Uh, but for most of us, what is Christian service? I think Christian service is seeing what needs to be done, evaluating whether you are capable of doing it and what your role is in addressing it, and then following through, focused on the good of others for the good of Christ's church. Service is the earthy, practical way of loving our neighbor as ourselves. So first, service looks for where help is needed or responds when a need is made known. This might be in the intensely ordinary areas of life, making a meal for someone, helping clear the tables after a church potluck, This might be in more relational, but still practical ways. Calling someone, offering a listening ear, or skills as a counselor, encouraging someone, engaging in thoughtful debate with someone to sharpen and encourage a brother or sister. Christian service is observant and ready to to respond. Now, the world is full of needs, We could give money endlessly and volunteer at any number of worthy causes so how do we choose where we direct our service how do we know what god is calling us to serve where god is calling us to serve well remember we are to love our neighbor as ourselves so start with where you are i've often um said over the past few years that God loves the world, but he seems to think it a big enough task to assign me to love my neighbor and my enemy. So start there. Start with your neighbor. By the way, uh, G.K. Chesterton said that loving your neighbor and your enemy is it's often very convenient because uh, they're often the same people. So you can take that one in there, too. So we start with where we are. Start with our duty, another word we heard a lot about in relation to Queen Elizabeth. And what is, with what is immediately at hand. For most of us, that's our family and close friends. And we could do a lot worse than starting also with our church community and our obligations here. This morning there were announcements, many different ways to serve and to share in community life one another and to serve with one another. And many of you are doing just that. How many people have already served us or our children just in the last 45 minutes when we walk through the door? The greeters uh, at at our parking lot who balance that fine task between welcome and security, the anonymous coffee makers, I'm so glad they're back, the Sunday school teachers, the tech crew tucked away at the back, the musicians, and those who have planned the service. And throughout the week, we have had people who have marshaled us to prayer, or served those who were sick, who remembered to call shut-ins. Start there. Start with your neighbor. Start with the person in the pews around you. Start with the needs of, of, that you see. Some will be obvious, to all of us, and some will be ones where the Holy Spirit prompts you in particular for something that you say, I need to call this person, or I need to uh, stop by and, and say a word of encouragement. Second, Christian service looks for areas where you are capable of responding. Some of this is tied to spiritual gifts, or natural talents and inclinations, or even our professional training. I mean, there's a reason why Matt Lahotsky is the elder who often presents budget issues, or why we often ask Brian Barkley to do special readings in church. There's a reason why Regula or Brendine work in Christian education. They serve in areas that suit their talents and training. But often, our ability will also be related to our circumstances, as well as our talents. If you're retired like me, you have may have more flexibility in your schedule than if you were working all week or tending to family obligations. Often, an area of service that suits us will be more likely to bring us joy, and also be more likely to actually be useful and helpful. This is especially true if we are serving in areas that match where God has spiritually gifted us. And we should actively, not just passively, search for those opportunities in particular. We would be wise to honestly look at how God has made us and how to use that for his glory and his church. Now at the same time, be careful that we still remember the first point. Does it just simply need to be done? and can I contribute in some way? If something needs to be done, and God has placed the need in front of me, I'm not off the hook just because it's not my gift. Don't spiritualize your own desire to avoid the task at hand. What if you don't honestly know what that is, what you should be doing? What if you don't, or what if you just don't know where to start? Start small. Maybe you think you might be good at teaching. Well, volunteer to be a helper. See how that goes. What if you think you might be able to serve in administrative, behind-the-scenes way? Give the office a call and see if there's something that maybe they could assign a task that you could help with. What if you think you might have the gift of hospitality? Invite someone over for coffee or a meal, or invite someone to go out for lunch after church with you but start somewhere. Most of us can identify something that feels like it's a good fit for us. Or maybe you don't know how to get connected. You think you'd like to do that, you just you truly also don't know. You kinda know what, but you don't know how. Well, again, send a message to the office, and I'm sure they can give you many ideas for areas that need support. In addition to serving the church, this, by the way, is also a great way to meet others and to be served. And that's also an example that Christ gave us, a humble willingness to accept service. Finally, Christian service is focused on others, not on self. Christian service is humble. Now, humility doesn't always mean doing the lowest thing, whatever we think that might be. Queen Elizabeth probably didn't regularly wash the palace floors, and it wasn't wrong of her not to do so. Her duties were different than ours. But in between weekly audiences with prime ministers, she chatted patiently with children, giving her small bouquets of flowers and cut ribbons and cake at countless small-town events. Lots more moose than Manhattan in her life. Jesus went to a lot of parties, but he didn't host them. The Son of Man had no place to lay his head, but he was a welcome guest when Mary and Martha hosted. Each played his or her role, gratefully, willingly, focused on others. This is true humility. I read something the other day. I'm paraphrasing, but essentially the author said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. So humble service is other-focused, not self-focused. When we are serving Christ or the church, our focus should not be self-exalting. See what a good thing I am doing, how good I am at this, or I will serve but only if I can be seen so people will notice me. But nor should it be self-effacing. See how I always take the worst jobs. Aren't I something? Sometimes that will be, service will be more exalted, sometimes more lonely, sometimes Manhattan, more often Moose Service to others has been the pattern of Christians throughout the centuries. We see our heritage in so many places and reflected in our cultural institutions. Universities, so many founded by the church to educate the brightest and the best soup kitchens and shelters, so many founded and operated by believers who seek to offer a cup of kindness and care to the least and lost, hospitals that serve us all. Increasingly, we know that in our culture, the church is less welcome as a cultural force, but that doesn't remove from us the call to serve and to bless our church and our community. If we get less credit for it, Maybe that's okay. We were never to be focused on that in the first place. This has, been, this has been the church's practice as we have, however imperfectly, sought to follow the example of Christ, the one who came to serve, not to be served. In this, as in all things, he is our pattern. We serve the one who washed the feet of his disciples not so very long after being lauded in a triumphal entry to Jerusalem. And then, in his life-giving service, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. A final reminder from scripture. Paul says in Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. The Son of Man came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He is the pattern and example for Christians of all stations, whether we are ordinary people in the middle of the Canadian prairies, not famous, not famous but known only in our circles of other ordinary people or whether we are born to privilege and earthly power. For those of you who watched the Queen's funeral, did you note the final ritual in all the ceremony and symbolism? The orb and the scepter and her jeweled crown. All the symbols of her earthly power and authority were removed from the top of the casket just before her body was lowered through the floor of St. George's Chapel, all that authority was returned to Christ as they were placed on the altar of the church. A profound reminder that they were always only ever borrowed. And she was returned to the earth as we all one day will be in her naked humanity before her Creator. That type of earthly power does not remain, but what will remain is what she has done in her life of service to her sovereign. Again, turning to the funeral homily from the Archbishop of Canterbury, and by the way, as an aside, it seriously crossed my mind this past week that we should have just watched her funeral service and skipped my sermon. It was profoundly Christian and moving. But the archbishop said, In 1953, the queen began her coronation with silent prayer, just there at the high altar. Her allegiance to God was given before any person gave allegiance to her. Her service to so many people in this nation, the commonwealth and the world, had its foundation in her following Christ, God himself, who said that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. People of loving service are rare in any walk of life. Leaders of loving service are still rarer. But in all cases, those who serve will be loved and remembered when those who cling to power and privilege are long forgotten. So let us also like Queen Elizabeth, but more like Jesus himself, our servant king. Let's follow a life of service our whole lives, whether they be long or short.